Go ahead and open up your confession to chapter 9. Our intention tonight is to get through paragraphs 1 through 3. And then we'll do 4 and 5 in two weeks when we come back uh, to the confession. We'll see how we do tonight. Um, 2 through 3 can be relatively easily combined with uh, 4 and 5. Uh, but we'll, we'll see how far we get. All right, so uh, this topic is the, the conf- begins the confession's treatment of soteriology. This is page uh, 1,314, uh, if you're using the, the Scout Hut Bibles, 1,314, Confession of Faith, Chapter 9. Uh, and this begins the, the confession's teachings on the doctrines of soteriology, or, or that is uh, the doctrines of salvation. And that, that's going to run all the way through chapter 19. So it'll take us through at least the rest of this school year. And, and unlike some of the other doctrines that we've already covered, like the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of Scripture, uh, the doctrine of the Mediator, these kinds of things, uh, we're getting into one where earnest, faithful, sincere Christians uh, sincerely disagree with one another. Because we're talking about the topic of free will tonight. Uh, the show of hands, how many people have had an argument with a friend who's also a Christian over free will? One, two, three, most of us. All right. Um, and so this is a doctrine that, that a lot of people uh, really, I suspect, even those who argue against it, don't really understand what they're arguing against. And I also suspect that um, more than one of us, probably several of us, myself included, have at times gotten caught defending a straw man. Does anyone know what I mean by that expression? What's it mean to defend a straw man? Like you feel like you don't have like a very strong proof of anything. We've probably felt that way too, but that's not what that uh, idiom means. Stephen? A question that was asked not as a question to understand, but to um, make you but to um, basically as a joke. Yeah, okay, that's closer. When I say we're, we're defending a straw man, sometimes we're defending their caricature, their mocking version of what we actually believed. And so let's, let's be careful how we understand that, because I, I would suspect that uh, some of us may hear uh, the Reformed Doctrine of Free Will and think the Reformed Doctrine of Free Will is it doesn't exist, the end, next chapter. And yet that's, that's actually not what this says. There is a proper reformed understanding uh, that's different from the, that of the world and different from that of our Arminian friends. R.C. Sproul sums up the secular, that is the world's idea of free will, this way. Uh, the prevailing view of free will in the secular culture is that human beings are able to make choices without being encumbered, that's burdened, impaired, whatever, by sin. In this view, our wills have no predisposition either toward evil or toward righteousness, but remain in a neutral state from birth. So that's a, that's a secular, that's a worldly idea of free will that we, of course, reject. We, that does, that's not what the Bible teaches, <coughs> and that's not what we believe. Robert Shaw, who's another a Reformed theologian from the mid-1800s, he uh, will sum up our Arminian friend's view of free will this way, that it has these components. 
that will has a self-determining power, a certain sovereignty over itself. Two, that a state of indifference whereby the will is without bias uh, is, is what free will means. Uh, and again, that's a view that's not necessarily outside the bounds of Christianity, but we would say that's, that's not really what the Bible teaches. Um, and, and for that reason, because so many people when they hear the term free will, they instantly go to these ideas of free will. For that reason, the, the word's not that helpful. The, the expression is, is actually more confusing than it is, it is helpful. Like, this idea to free will is so wed to the words free will that it's like, if I say, you know, the sky is blue, you instantly have a picture in your mind of what that looks like, and I'm not going to talk you out of it. Even if I mean something completely different by blue. So for those reasons, we don't really like to use the term. Uh, Dr. Phillips says, uh, well, Dr. Phillips says that the term, because it's so tied to that, it's, it's confusing to use, and that's why we avoid it. And yet, the Westminster Divines begin their chapter on free will this way. God hath endued, that is, he's given, he's blessed, he's, he's bestowed upon the will of man that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. And those words mean exactly what they say. God has given the will of man a, a natural liberty, which is another word for freedom, that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good and evil. And I would suspect that most of us probably read that in, in preparation for tonight and said, oh, well, that's, that's talking about before the fall. That's talking about before Adam and Eve uh, took the fruit. And, and certainly there were radical differences in the will of man after the fall and before the fall. And, and yet, um, this, this, they're not talking about before the fall necessarily. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn, that's a name probably most of y'all don't know, but he's a professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. He was a professor of, or he was, now he's a professor of church history at RTS Charlotte. So his bona fide uh, reform credentials are not really in question. He did his PhD on the minutes of the Westminster Assembly. What that means is he studied all the notes that were kept from when this document was written. So, so he knows very well what they meant. Uh, and he says... It's important to recognize that the first paragraph of chapter 9 is not considering human beings only as they were created, or as they were fallen, or as they are redeemed, or as they will be one day in heaven or hell. It is saying something that is true of the will through every stage of history and at any point in our lives in time or eternity. And the point is this, that the Bible plainly teaches that we make choices for which we are accountable, for which we are responsible. And this is true of, 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 of Adam and Eve before the fall. It's true of all their progeny after the fall. It's true of you before you were born again and after you were born again, and it will be true of you in glory. So in a sense, in a sense, they are arguing for a form of, of free will, but one that is radically different from what the world means, 
that the will is not under any sort of influence by sin, and radically different from what our Arminian friends mean. G.I. Williamson, who's another uh, Reformed scholar, defined it this way. By free will, we mean that man's will is not coerced. We mean that man is not forced by some external force greater than himself to do something he does not want to do. We, may, we mean that free is do, free, man is free to do what he wants to do. Now, this is the careful and important qualification. Within the limits of his ability. Confusion of these distinctions accounts for much false thinking on the subject of free will. Many people really mean ability when they say liberty or freedom. They speak of man being free to do good or evil when the, what they really mean is man is able to do good or evil. And that would be a serious error. Man in his fallen condition is not able to choose to do good. But there's not something external to him barring him from doing it. It's, it's his own sinful nature. Uh, the Bible clearly and consistently teaches, on the one hand, that man is free to, 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 to do good or evil, that he is at liberty to do either, but that he is only able to do evil because of his fallen condition. That's a really important distinction to make. Free in the sense that there's nothing forcing him to act one way or the other, unable because of his fallen nature and only able to act in accord with that nature. The best illustration I've found of this point to help get it across is, uh, and I've shared this with some of you before, imagine that you had two uh, bowls of food. And in one bowl of food, you've got carrots and celery and, and, and other kinds of vegetables. And in the other bowl of food, you've got a rotting carcass. You bring into this room with these two bowls of food, a vulture. What is that vulture freely going to choose to eat? The carcass. Do you have to, is he being forced against himself to do it? No, he's going to freely choose to do it because that is his nature. His nature will only ever choose to do that. Take those same two bowls of food and now you bring a, a bunny rabbit in. Where is he going? The vegetables. Because that's his nature. That's what he's going to choose. Man is free in the sense that there's no external force coercing him into choosing X or Y. But he is not able to do anything other than what his nature prescribes. Does that make sense? It's a very important distinction because what often Reformed uh, theologians or what Reformed believers get characterized as believing is that uh, uh, we are all just robots running a program. No, you do make choices that you're accountable for, that you're responsible for, and so you need to be careful what choices you make. The reason that you sin is not because the devil made you do it. It's because you wanted to. At the same time, the reason that you as a regenerate, born-again Christian choose to do good things, righteous things, holy things, is not because God made you, but because you wanted to. You wanted to come to church. You wanted to worship. You wanted to read your Bible. You wanted to pray. You wanted to sing. At the same time, yes, God has sovereignly foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And, and, and he has sovereignly decreed that you would be in this room at this time, sitting right where you are, before the foundations of the world. 
Those two truths must be kept in mind side by side with one another. I'm going to show you two spots where they are in the Bible, but they're all over the place. One is uh, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Let's go ahead and flip there. Just to give you guys some context, I know you all all know Genesis 50 like the back of your hand, but humor me for a minute. Um, Genesis 50, this is the end of the Joseph story, right? And uh, they're in Egypt, and all of his family is now in Egypt, and Joseph is at the right hand of Pharaoh, and uh, his brothers are concerned because they think that Joseph has only been kind to them because their father was alive, and now Jacob, the father, has died, and they say, oh no, Joseph's going to get us. And Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50 and verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me. It was in their heart to do evil when they sold him into slavery. It was in their heart to hurt him. It was their desire, their choice, their everything to do that. But God meant it the very same thing for good. To bring about as it is, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We have in that one verse, on the one hand, the brothers intended evil in their act. They freely chose to do it because they were evil, because they hated their brother. And yet also, it was according to God's plan as well. Yes, Ethan? Um, what about like the possession? Huh? Like when a, a man <coughs> would enter like a person's body that probably wasn't in their will but by nature they would choose that to happen you know sure um that's really a far of where we're going tonight but um i think the short answer is nobody ever became a sinner by sort by by demon possession okay. they became yeah. worse of a sinner than they otherwise would be but they did not become does that make sense yeah. all right so let's look at one other place that holds these truths side by side acts chapter 2 and verse 23. This is uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This is like six weeks after the crucifixion and resurrection. Acts 2 and verse 23. This is on page 1018. And so Peter says, I'll, be, I'll back up to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God decreed that this would happen from before the foundations of the earth. His definite plan and foreknowledge. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did they crucify the Lord Jesus? Because they hated him. Because they were jealous of him. And they wanted him gone. And those two truths are held side by side. How exactly that works together, I can't tell you because I'm not God. I think what happens sometimes is we try and fit God into a particular box. And, and people will, will go too far on, on the sovereignty side to the point of denying that humans make decisions. Or they'll go the other way, which is frankly more dangerous, but no less wrong. They know they make free decisions that they want to do, and so they'll deny God's sovereignty. The Reformed theology holds both of these together. People act in accordance with their nature. What makes all the difference in the world is when God changes somebody's nature. 
And, and so what the confession is going to go on to talk about in, in the rest of the time that we have together tonight in paragraphs two and three is, is what happens in these different states of nature. Um, again, this is, this is where the Dr. Phillips quote uh, comes in helpful. He says, you are free to do as you please, but you are not free to please as you please meaning your pleasure is dictated by your nature, but then you act freely in accord with that nature. Again, Williamson explains it this way, and I'm, I'm quoting a lot of guys here. I know that that can be hard to listen to because the precision of language is important here. Williamson says, the will is a faculty of man's soul or personality. The will is therefore determined by the soul, that is the self, the ego, the personality of the man. It cannot escape the moral character out of which it comes. If the soul is entirely corrupt, so that its knowledge and desire are defective and rotten, which is the state of man after the fall, it follows that it, that it can will desire to do only that which is evil. Thus, liberty exists even though there is inability to do good. So I'm going to pause there and open it up for, for questions that I will do my best with, but that's an important distinction to get straight. Do we have any questions on that? The difference between liberty and ability. Everybody feels pretty clear on that. Okay. So with the rest of our time, we're going to introduce a concept that we'll probably have to follow up on next time uh, that really works through the, the next four paragraphs. Uh, and this comes to us, uh, this formulation comes to us from a famous Scottish Presbyterian back in the 1700s named Thomas Boston. And it's called the fourfold state of man. And what, what Boston is doing here is he's tracing uh, what is the condition, what is the ability of man's nature in the four different states of redemptive history. Uh, and so there's the state of innocence. There's the state of the fallen man. There's regenerated man, and then there's glorified man. And uh, what these four states look like is this, according to his formulation. In the state of innocence, that's Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, man is able to sin. God made man good, but the confession says mutably so. That word mutably means changeably, able to deviate from that, right? Ecclesiastes 7.29 says God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made Adam and Eve in such a way that they had everything necessary to obey him, everything necessary to, to be faithful to, the, to, to his covenant. And yet mutably so, so that if they so chose, they could fall. Man, in the state of innocence, is able to sin. Now, fallen man is not able not to sin. Fallen man, according to his sinful nature, is unable to do anything but sin. Because he hates God and wants to determine for himself what is right and what is wrong. He wants to be his own God. And for that reason, in the ultimate sense, he is not able not to sin. Then in the state of regeneration, does anyone want to guess what regenerated man would be? Able to not sin? Right. Able to not sin. 
and yet still also able to sin. And then the change that happens to glorified man is he is not able to sin. And as you all see in the confession, this doesn't happen until the state of glory. Uh, or, you know, man's soul is made perfect at his death and he immediately passes into glory. But in terms of not able not to sin, we're speaking of body and soul in the glorified state in the new heavens and the new earth. Or to use the fancy Latin terms, passe peccare, non passe non peccare, passe non peccare, non passe peccare. Yes? So how do you get from regeneration to glorification? How do you get from regeneration to glorification? Yeah. It's a matter of time, my friend. If you are regenerated, you will be glorified. So the, the, you will not... You will not know a day in this life that you're glorified. Won't happen. Some people teach it will. It won't. Because you always still have that old nature that is still lurking within you. Lord willing, uh, over time, it's becoming weaker and weaker, and your and your 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 new nature, your new man, is growing stronger and stronger. So you will sin less, but you will never be sinless in this life. Um, the, the confession teaches, and I would say the Bible teaches, that at death, your soul is made perfect and immediately passes into glory. And at the day of resurrection, your body and soul will enter into the full enjoying of God to all eternity. And so that, that's what they're talking about in the state of glorification. Glorified man is after the resurrection, after the return of Christ. So, yeah. Are angels in that state of innocence? <clears throat> yes. Um, and those that... And, and angels... They, they only know this state and this state. There is no... So, so all angels were created in the state of innocence. Some fell and remained fallen. And now are servants of Satan. And there is no hope of regeneration for those. Um, yeah. Other questions? Wait, now I'm curious. Why yes. is there... No, why can they not be regenerated? Don't know. Okay. It's just what the Bible says. Come on. <laughs> I, I, I can't uh, ask God, why did you make it this way? But I can say that his word says he made it that way. Where yeah. it, like, what's the verse that says that? Um, you would ask that. Um, I, believe it's, I believe it's in... It is an interesting question. I believe it's in Hebrews where, where uh, the author of Hebrews speaks about angels longing to look into the glories of redemption. They, they just can't fathom uh, the idea that God would, would make this available to creatures like us, and yet he has. Um, others? So, big takeaways are Reformed theology does not deny that man is accountable and responsible for the choices he makes. We're not hard determinists. But we also affirm that God has sovereignly ordained from before the foundations of every single thing that ever happens. Somehow, that's beyond our comprehending, those two are are held together. And I'll tell you guys the same thing I told a friend at lunch today while I was talking about preparing this material. It's important to me that you all see the Bible doesn't just teach both of those things, but it teaches them right next to each other. And by that I mean, if I, if I had to go to like, I don't know, Isaiah to get man's accountability, and then I had to go to Ephesians to get God's sovereignty, I would say those are just conflicting books. And yet the Bible holds them right next to each other in the same verses. Genesis 50, 20, Acts 2, 23, and there are others too. 
And so those are not conflicting statements. The author knows what he meant. The author means what he says. How that works is the mystery of God. Yeah. So if you find one, you find the other? Huh? So if you find one, you find the other? Yeah. All right. Um, well, let's close it there, and we'll look at this fourfold state in more detail next week. I kind of thought that was going to happen when I was halfway through writing on, on paragraph one, but so it is. All right. Uh, and then I believe, Mr. Johnson, you have a second hymn prepared for us? All right. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you uh, for your word. We thank you that you love us and that you have seen fit uh, in your love for us to overcome our fallenness, to overcome our sin nature, to overcome our desire to only do evil continually, as your word says, is in the heart of all men after the fall, and that you've given us a new man, that you are the God who works in us both to will, to desire, to yearn, and to do your good pleasure. And Father, I pray that you would grow all of my friends here in their desire to obey you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.